uh, 420 uh, this week. But do you have questions before we begin? Yes, Carol. You don't ask questions very often. You must really have a question. Right. What does Paul mean when he says, but God is one? And I, I will definitely interpret that. In fact, I just told Mandy today, I read that whole verses 20 and 21 or 19 through 21. And I said, so what does that mean? And she's like, oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, I wouldn't have known either apart from studying. But here's my goal, that everyone walks out of here today and goes, I get that. That's, that's one of those verses I want to make sure you walk out understanding. I've got my work cut out for me. Any other questions? Well, let's pray and dive in. Father God, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful for you. We are grateful for your word. Father, I just pray that you would um, enliven it to our hearts, quicken it to our minds, that we would uh, understand and uh, be able to apply the truth of your word, which is so rich and deep and reliable. Uh, thank you for stretching us, Father. There's no better reason to be stretched than to understand your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are just going to dig right in, and we're going to cover 10 through 14 from last week and move right on. No introduction, nothing. We're going to start right here. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith, but on the contrary. The man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, first of all, there's a lot here. This, this is a lecture all by itself, and I can't do it justice in just a few minutes. But let me tell you that Paul, four times in five verses, quotes the Old Testament. So Paul is using the Old Testament uh, to argue for his, justi his justification is by faith and not the law. And, and keep in mind that, that the people, the Judaizers, who were preaching um, heresy, that, that were uh, trying to add works to faith, were Jewish, of a Jewish background. And the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. And so he is using their very scriptures to show, you know what, they got it wrong. It isn't by the law that we are justified, it is by faith. And so that's why he keeps saying it is written, it is written, it is written. And, and everything that's in quotation marks up there comes from the Old Testament. Uh, if at any point any of this, actually today, but this right here, doesn't make sense to you, uh, feel free to catch me afterward, call me, email me anytime. I'm up late, by the way, so even if you want to call me late, that's fine. Um, but what Paul says here is anyone who tries to be justified by the law is under a curse. They are condemned if they try to be justified through the law, be made right with God. It's not because the law is wrong or bad. It came from the heart of God. It's because of us. It's because we are incapable of keeping. It doesn't matter what we call the law. In this case, he's talking about 
the moral and ceremonial law of the Jews. But there's nobody, there's no religion that sets a standard that its followers can follow. Because we're imperfect. We are incapable of that. In fact, if you've taken any of your children through Sparky's and Awana, you know this verse, James 2.10. For if anyone keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. So we are incapable of keeping that law. We all sin, and therefore we all break any works-based righteousness, any works-based justification, because we can't keep it. So therefore no one can be justified by the law. We cannot be made right by the law. And that is his point here. And then he says, Christ redeemed us from the law. Redemption is a wonderful word. It means to buy back. It means a payment price. In ancient times, slavery was, was very different, and this word was used in connection with slavery. Slavery was very different than the slavery that, that we know of from um, American history. People sold themselves into slavery as a way to get out of debt or a way to make a living, and uh, they would work to buy themselves out of that. But more often, uh, a friend or a relative would redeem them from slavery, would pay the price pay the purchase price to buy them out of slavery and into freedom. So, so Paul says Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from slavery to sin and the law. Uh, and so uh, in order to, to redeem us, in order to pay that price, Jesus had to come under God's curse on the cross. And that's what it means when he quotes the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Hung on a tree is referring to Christ's crucifixion. This isn't the only place where that is referred to uh, in the New Testament. And it was different in the Old Testament. I had you go through that. But that's the point that Paul is making, that in order to redeem us, in order to buy us out of slavery, Jesus had to put voluntarily, put himself under the curse of sin. Though he was righteous, though he was perfect, he voluntarily chose to come under that curse in order to buy us back for God. Now, this would have been utterly offensive to the Jews. In fact, they would have considered it blasphemy to have a Jewish Messiah hanging on a tree, hanging on a Roman, no less, cross. They could not have understood that. That, that. that was not part of their paradigm. But Paul is telling us that that was the way, that was the only way that the blessing of Abraham, that the promise of salvation, that justification could come to us, could come to anyone, Jew or Gentile, was for Jesus to voluntarily come under the law's curse so that we might be freed from it, so that we might be justified, so that we might be made right with God and receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Receive salvation, essentially. So that's the verse, uh, verses 10 through 14, and then moving on, okay. Moving on, no, we're going backwards when I go forwards. There we go, thank you, Julie, appreciate it. Uh, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. But scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to his, your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, 
then there, it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, first of all, let's just review quickly what that promise is. And, and when uh, Paul talks about the promise, it includes all of this. It isn't just a singular promise. It is, it is the multiplicity of promises that God gave to Abraham that is all part of the promise because it's all part of Christ. Uh, and that's essentially the point he's making. So in, in Genesis 12, at 1 through 3, as we read last week and as you read in your study this week, God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Uh, he also said, I will make your name great. And then he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Which Paul referred to as being the gospel of Christ preached in advance. That was, that was the gospel message, that all peoples will be blessed through the Messiah, through Jesus, who will come through you. And then in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, when God ratified the, tre the treaty, ratified the covenant he made with Abraham, God said to Abraham, I will be your shield and your very great reward. He said, I will give you a son. But he said more than that. Your off and this is, this is a childless man, he says, your offspring, your seed, will be as numerous as the stars. And then he kind of puts Abraham out, like twilight sleep thing, you know, kind of puts him under, and, and ratifies the treaty all by himself. You notice how many times God said, I will, in this? Keep that in mind. So Paul is, what Paul is establishing here is the permanence of the covenant and the promises God made to Abraham. And he starts with a human example, which is essentially what we would call a last will and testament. But it would be true of any duly signed contract. Uh, and and uh, in the case of a will, once the person has died, you can't change the will. It's permanent. It's lasting. And it's true with any contract. I thought of like when you sign a mortgage and you go home and you think, you know what, why are we paying interest? Let's just pencil in it. You know, no, you can't just go and say, let's just scratch that one. Or I can't go back to Geico and say, you know what, I want more money than that. I know we signed this and we had it notarized with two witnesses, no less. But I just think I deserve more. And actually, I do deserve more. But so let's just cross it out and let's put the number that we actually, no, we can't do that, can we? No, because it's been duly um, notarized. It's, 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 a, it's a legal binding contract. Paul's point is that the promises of God, the promise that it's all of the promises God made, to, to, that God made to Abraham and the covenant performed by God are permanent. Uh, and if a human will cannot be changed, surely the promise of God is firm and standing. Uh, now what does he mean when he talks about this whole, to, it doesn't say, it says to your seed, not to your seeds. Uh, because, as you probably noticed, the word seed or the word offspring can mean both singular or plural. It's called a collective noun. Well, Paul knew that, but he's making a, a theological point by saying that um, because he's, he's, he's referring to Jesus Christ. And, and he's saying that, look, this promise wasn't just for Abraham, nor just for his physical descendants, offspring in the plural, it was for all God's children, but ultimately, ultimately, and more importantly, because that covenant is all about Jesus, remember, all nations will be blessed through you, is the gospel being preached in advance. So because that covenant is all about 
Jesus, then Jesus Christ is the true offspring. He is singular. He is the Messiah who is, in fact, the promise. Uh, And so the true children of Abraham are not identified biologically through Abraham. They are identified Christologically through Christ. It is those who are in Christ that are not only children of Abraham, but also children of God, a point he will make in just a minute. So God gave the promise to Abraham, but the promise was Christ. And since then, we are in Christ. Remember that union we have with Christ because we have believed into him. Then the promise is for us. So the promise refers to first and foremost to one person, to a seed, not seeds. It refers to Jesus. He is the promise. But then because of that, it also comes down to us. So here's Paul's point in verses 17 and 18. He says, what I mean is this. The law of Moses was given 430 years later. The law of Moses does not set aside or nullify or alter the promise in any way. The promise of God that all nations would be blessed through the Messiah that would come from Abraham is permanent. It cannot be changed. It cannot be nullified. And, and, and so is the inheritance that he talks about at the end. So is the inheritance that comes by that promise. All that is ours in Christ is our inheritance. That includes salvation and eternal life and so much more. It is ours in Christ and it is permanent. It cannot be changed. Uh, And it is only through that promise that it is ours. It can't come from the law and it can't even come part law, part promise. No, it's either all by the promise or there is no inheritance at all. It only comes through Christ. And here's why. The pro- in the promise, God is saying, I will, I will, I will. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. I will keep my promises to you. The law is all about thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. How can anything we do set aside what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ? It cannot. The the law does not nullify the promise. And it is impossible to earn a promise. One needs only to trust it, to receive it. And God, because of that, God does not deal with us according to our works. He deals with us according to his promise. And aren't you glad he does? Praise God for that. God does not, God cannot ever break a promise. And praise God for that too. Which leads to a natural question. Why then the law? What is the purpose of the law? If the law can't save... And and if it does not supersede the promise, then why is it there? What is the purpose of it? And in the next passage, Paul's going to answer that. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. 
The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So Paul gives us a number of purposes for, or, or at least one, but it has several parts to it, of the law here. He says it was given for transgressions, and then he doesn't explain what that means. So we're left to figure that out. And actually, I think given for transgressions, or because of transgressions, has a number of meanings. First of all, what it doesn't mean, I don't think it means to decrease sin. I think it actually means it was given to increase sin. Have you ever noticed how just someone telling you not to do someone makes you want to do it? I know you've noticed it in your children. At the Hope Center in Serenje, Zambia, they had to put up an electric fence, not because of the children, but because of the people that were uh, going onto the property and stealing the food that was being grown for the children, so they put up an electric fence. When they did this, they really needed to inform the young children that there was an electric fence, and so they said, do not touch the fence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, the good thing is is that it, it wasn't enough to kill you. Uh, the other good thing is, is that the older ones were the first ones to get some money. Ah! And so they were very good instructors to the younger ones to say, they were right, don't touch the fence. But they have repeatedly have problems with kids going, did God really say don't touch the fence? Maybe I can touch that fence. The law actually increases sin. And one purpose of the law is to increase sin. The second, second purpose of what it means for transgressions is that the moral law, the law that the, the moral law is like the Ten Commandments, those, those laws that we are to live by, and we'll talk about in a minute what that means, um, that, that, that are part of God's moral law, not the ceremonial law, which is the sort of traditions, the circumcision, the um, ritual washings, and those sorts of things are the ceremonial law. But the moral law shows us that something is sin. It defines sin as sin. It uh, shows us or teaches us that sin is a breaking of God's holy standard. But what it cannot do is give us the desire nor the power to live by it. It just informs us. That is against God's holy standard. I love this quote from Andrew Jukes. He said, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave us to prove we are sinners. Um, A third thing that for transgressions means is that the ceremonial law, the the sacrifices that were made for people's sin, provided temporary, inadequate atonement for sin. So God did not give the law as a means of justification, but rather as a way of of exposing the evil power of sin and defining it as sin. But that's a good thing because it is our very sinfulness and and the understanding of our sinfulness that shows us our need for a Savior, that proves to us that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. We need to be redeemed. Now, another thing that Paul talks about in here is that there are limits to the law. Uh, While the promise is eternal, there are limits to the law. It was given for a limited time. 
It was given until the seed, capital S, came, until Jesus came to fulfill it. Uh, and so it was given for a limited time. It was also given by an inferior method. And here we get to verse 20. A that, that the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. The law came from God through angels to a mediator, Moses, to the people. So it was handed down uh, from God, angels, Moses, people. The promise came from God. There was no mediator. From God to Abraham, which flowed down to us. Therefore, it's given directly to us as well. So it is superior because it is more direct. Let me give you a human example. Uh, in 2009, our son received an appointment to the Air Force Academy, which is a process all in itself. But one of the things in order to receive an appointment to an Air, the Air Force Academy, you need, and I'm not making any sort of political statement here, so don't read that into it, okay? In order to receive an appointment to the Air Force or any of the academies, you need to receive a nomination from, well, you can receive it from the vice president, but, but from one of your senators or, a, or your congressman. And Josh interviewed, and, and it, that was a whole application process in itself, and interviewed with both senators and with uh, Lee Terry, who at the time was our congressman. It's, it's now Fortenberry. I don't understand that. But anyway, um, so he re actually received a nomination both from Ben Nelson and from Lee Terry. Here's my point. When Lee Terry decided to give Josh a nomination, he called Josh personally and said, I would like to congratulate you. I'm giving you one of my nominations to both the Air Force and Naval Academy. Ben Nelson sent an electronically signed letter in the mail. Which one do you think was more meaningful to Josh? Which one was true? Which one was more direct? Which one was more effective? And that's essentially what he's saying about the law, is that there's no middleman. This is a direct promise from God to us it is permanent, it is lasting, it is trustworthy. Um, and then finally he says, as a limit to the law, is that it cannot impart life. The law can only condemn, because we cannot keep it. It is not opposed to the promise, but it is subordinate to it, and it is inferior to the promise. So we are prisoners of sin because of the condemnation of the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is, in, is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held, as, held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So he gives two sort of analogies here about what the, the, the law is and, and part of its purpose. And the first one is that the law is like a prison warden. The, the law keeps us locked up in sin. Uh, and we can't stop sinning, and so we can't be justified by the law. And so apart from Christ, we would forever be locked in this prison of sin. There's no way out. And then he kind of switches it 
and says, so the law was put in charge to lead us. That word actually is pedagogue, and, and that word, you might, if you're a teacher, you kind of recognize that word, but that the law doesn't mean a teacher, or that word doesn't mean a teacher. A pedagogue was a slave that was put in charge of a child. Not to teach him, he had teachers, but to lead him, to protect him, to discipline him. It's like a chaperone. Chaperones have never been popular, have they? Yeah, and, and these guys weren't popular sometimes too. But the point of the pedagogue was to discipline, was to protect. And that's the role of the law as well. It was to, to discipline us and to protect us until the time came that we, uh, until Christ came or until we knew Christ. So what is the purpose of the law? Another purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ, to make us realize our need of a Savior and to realize that Jesus is that Savior. Um, so now once we are in Christ, once we have that union that we've talked about in Christ, we are freed from the prison of sin. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. So then, you might ask, does that mean that the law has no purpose in our lives as believers? And Paul's going to talk about this uh, but I just wanted you not to go, what is she teaching? So let me just, just tell you that the ceremonial law was fulfilled by Jesus. The ceremonial law was actually a picture given beforehand of, of an inadequate sacrifice that Christ would fulfill as a perfect sacrifice. But nobody's sacrificing animals anymore. They're unnecessary. If you stay with me for Hebrews, um, we'll talk about that at length. So the, cer the ceremonial law was fulfilled by Jesus. The moral law, we are to keep. But not for justification. Not to be made right with God. But because in Christ we have been made right with God. We desire to do what God wants us to do. And his moral law is an expression of that. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 5. Out of gratitude. A and the Spirit does... What the law could never do, it gives us both the desire and the power to live in a way that honors God. And Paul will get to that. So just a summary of the purposes of the law then. First of all, the first purpose is to reveal sin, to expose sin as sin. You know, you really only know you're breaking a law if there is a law to break. I heard, and I don't know this from experience, but I heard that years ago or, or some time ago, there were highways in Montana that didn't actually have speed limits. It was just like, the sign said something like, go as fast as you think is safe. Yeah, am I right? Okay. For the current conditions. So, so there's no law. So can you speed? No. You, if there's no speed limit, there's no law to break. That's what the law did for us. All. Oh, adultery's wrong. Okay, yeah, that's it defined for us what sin is. It revealed sin. It was also given to increase sin. Because doggone it, when somebody says, you can't do this, I still, even though I'm no longer a rebellious teenager anymore, I want to say, well, yeah, watch me. There's just some of that sin nature in us. And finally, it was given to lead us to Christ. Uh, now, I love this next few verses. This is so beautiful. Paul says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
slave nor free, male nor female. Do you realize how radical that is? They call Paul a misogynist. He was not. He put women in ancient times on the same level as men. I wasn't going to say that, but I got to tell you, it burns my chap, chaps my hide sometimes when people say that about Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The, these verses, these beautiful verses, tell us our true identity. They tell us our true identity in relation to God, in verses 26 and 27, in relation to other believers, in verse 28, and in relation to history in verse 29. So the first two verses, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Believers are children of God. We're not just children of Abraham. We are children of God. And in the Greek, one way of emphasizing a word is to make it the first word in a sentence. And the first word of this sentence is all in the Greek. All are children of God if you are in Christ. Um, and, and both Jewish and Gentile believers are all God's children. We are daughters of the Most High God. Not only that, but we have full rights as heirs if, if we have been baptized into Christ and clothed ourselves, if we've been baptized into Christ, and, and then if we have done that, then we are clothed with Christ. What does that mean to be baptized into Christ? I don't think he's talking about actual physical baptism because physical baptism, obviously, if that has salvific purposes, in other words, if it's something that saves you, hello, that's exactly what he's preaching against. It is a response to our salvation. So I think what he means is if we've been baptized into Christ, it's the same thing we talked about last week. If we've believed into him, if we've put our faith and trust in him, if we've been cleansed by him, we've been saved. Uh, then we, if that has happened, then we have been clothed in Christ. What does that mean? Or we are clothed with Christ. Well, I, I think that it means that Christ is our righteousness. Our garment of righteousness is Christ. So then we are God's children and heirs to a promise. This then is our relationship to God, and it is our true identity. We are children, we are daughters of the Most High God. And then it gives us our relationship to humanity in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we are all, as believers, children of God, then, duh, we're sisters, and we're brothers in Christ because we have the same father. 2,000 years later, these same divisions occur within the church. And isn't that sad? But the reality is we are one. We are one in Christ. That is our true identity as believers. And finally, in relation to history, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So... Our, our identity stretches back to Abraham and forward to eternity. We are, we are members in relation to history. We are members of the one family God began in time that will last for all eternity. That gives me goosebumps. I love that thought. We are heirs 
of God. Um, and in, in ancient times, it was only the first son that was the actual heir. No, no, no. All. All are heirs if we are in Christ. Um, heirs to the promise, which is forgiveness of sin and heaven and eternal life and so much more. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's where the rubber met the road in Galatia, and it is still true today. They were all God's children as believers. They were all one in Christ. They were all heirs to the same promise. They were all equal. What possible justification could they have for not having complete fellowship with one another? How much sense does this make? I know I'm going to be with you forever in heaven. I just can't have lunch with you right now. I'm just going to have to wait till we're in heaven to have that fellowship. No, we are all one in Christ. There is no uh, justification for saying, I can't eat with you because you're a Gentile. Or I can't have fellowship with you because you don't think exactly the same way I do. Uh, Beyond Galatia, it, it makes no more sense to have the divisions that we have among believers, among evangelical, among orthodox Christians... That, and by orthodox, I mean those who hold to the, tr- the tenets, the, the um, unchangeable tenets of the faith um, that, that continue to plague us. I love this quote from, from Philip Ryken. He says, in America, the only reason the race card sometimes gets played is that it's still in the deck. Yeah. If it weren't in the deck, it wouldn't be played. It ought not be, particularly in the church. We are all one in Christ. We are heirs to the same promise. Surely we ought to be able to live that out now. And then in, in uh, chap- we move over to chapter 4. He talks about moving from slavery to sonship. In verses 1 through say- 3, he says, What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. So again, he's kind of taking an example from everyday life to an underage heir. That even though the entire estate in some sense belonged to him, he was treated as a child the same as a slave. He has not yet taken possession of it. It reminds me of that wonderful part of the theological, uh, just deep story of of Lion King, um, (laughs) where Simba, uh, excuse me, um, oh, Mufasa has taken Simba and shown him all the land that will be his. Oh, he likes that. Uh, by the way, just as a side note, he tells him one thing not to do. The Shadowlands, what's the first place he goes? Yeah, see, even Simba had a sin nature. But so, so uh, he shows him all of it, and he thinks, it's mine now. And then he sings that whole, I just can't wait to be king. And Zazu's there when he's going, everybody look, left, everybody look, right, everybody look. I'm shining in the spotlight. And Zazu goes, not yet! That's what this is saying, that even though he was heir to the whole thing, it wasn't his yet. It didn't belong to him yet because he was still a child. So he says, when we were children, now what does that mean? Well, actually, it means two things, and both are true. Before Christ came, Jews before Christ came, he's referring to them as children before the promise came. But it also is true in our individual lives, that before we came to Christ, before we knew Christ, we were held as slaves to the elementary principles of the world. Well, that's very clear then, isn't it? What are the elementary principles of the world? Well, the literal meaning is like basic teaching, like ABCs and 123s uh, and, and basic um, 
reading, writing, and arithmetic. The law was like a spiritual elementary school that held us in prison. It wasn't the fullness of God's revelation. But there's also actually, and that would have been true for the Jews, but what about the Gentiles? They weren't held enslaved to the law. Actually, it has another meaning. Isn't that interesting? The other meaning is elemental spirits, so demonic spirits. So the Gentiles in Galatia that had come to Christ before they knew Christ, they were held in slavery to paganism. They were held in slavery to a false religion. Uh, and I think Paul probably had both in mind when he used that term. So the Jews were enslaved by lo the law and the Gentiles to paganism before Christ came and before they knew Christ. And then he says these words, but God. Those are the two most wonderful words in scripture because when you see but God, something's about to change in a dramatic way. You were held in slavery to the elemental uh, elementary truths, but when time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. I just feel like we could just close it and end. I love these verses. The first thing it talks about is the timing of Christ's coming. And in, in some verses, it says here, when the time had fully come. In some versions, I love this, it says, in the fullness of time. I love that. You know what it means? The exact perfect time. God's perfect timing. But you know what else it means? The, the, it was the perfect time in terms of the world. One, uh, person, one uh, theologian that I read said, you can search up and down through the centuries and you won't find a better time for the Messiah to come than the exact time that he came. There was a single language. Paul could preach anywhere in Greek and everyone would understand him. Before Christ, that was not true before the time of Christ. The Romans built roads. The gospel could spread because of the roads that the Romans built and because of the peace that they gave to the empire. Before that time and after that time, that would not have been true. The people were ready for a savior. Which is why when you read through the gospels, which is why Palestine was rife with messianic expectation. People, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Hosanna, Hosanna. But why? Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. He was fully human. Born under the law, which refers to his, his perfect keeping of the law. He was the only one who could keep the whole law and not stumble on any point. He had perfect obedience. He did everything the law required. And he even died under the law. Why? What was the purpose of that? To redeem those under the law. To buy back from slavery those under the law. Jesus paid the price for our freedom from slavery to the elementary principles of the world. Here's how Philip Ryken puts it. Oh no, this is John Stott, sorry, but it was in Philip Ryken's book. So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been a man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous man, men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men 
for God or made them sons of God, all of which it tells us here Jesus did. But there's a second purpose in these verses as well. It says that he came that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters of God. I've got a beautiful picture of this in the last couple of weeks. One of my very dear friends um, just recently adopted two teenage boys. Both had been foster children. Both have lived in more homes and suffered more undeserved horror than you or I could imagine. Denise bought those boys out of that. But she didn't just buy them back out of that. She adopted them. What a picture of what God has done for us. The idea of adoption is close to the heart of God. But it is also close to my heart, as most of you know. Because of that baby right there. That's my niece, Lucy May Radit Kohler. Radit was her given name in Ethiopia. It means blessings. See, there was a time when I did not belong to God. I was not his. But because of Christ, I was adopted. I am now fully God's. I belong to him completely. I get that. Because of this little girl, I get this. Because you know what? That baby, she's mine. She is fully mine. She could not be more my niece if we shared DNA. She is completely mine. And that is what God has done for us in Christ. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished, I love that word, lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. But he's not just our father, ladies. He's not just our father. He's our daddy. That's what Abba Father means. It means daddy. I remember when I was a little girl, um, and probably about first or second grade, because I know we were living in Virginia, I said to my mother, I said, Mommy, when I die, am I going to be able to sit on God's lap? Because my picture of God was like my daddy. And my mom very wisely said, Oh, yeah, baby, you'll be able to sit on his lap. I think I had it right even at six or seven years old, because he isn't just our father, he is our daddy. And as one who was privileged to be raised by a daddy who was wonderful and gentle and godly and has now gone to be with Jesus, I am so grateful that I can continue to experience something even better and will eternally with my wonderful Abba Father, my daddy, God. There's a song that I cry every time so I'm not going to play it. It's called He Knows My Name. And the second verse begins, I have a father. He calls me his own. And I cry every time. Partly because I miss my daddy, but mostly because I know I still have an Abba Father who will never leave me and never forsake me. And finally, we're going to end with this passion. Oh, there she is again. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> not me, her. Uh, we're going to end with this passionate plea that Paul gives to the Galatians. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, my brothers, become like me, for I became like you. 
You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not, and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This just hit me as I was reading this. What has happened to all your joy? A works-based righteousness is a joyless righteousness, isn't it? Because you got to keep the law. Anybody ever get a speeding ticket and say, oh, thank you, sir, kind sir. I now know I was wrong. I will, I will go the speed limit with joy for the... No, you do not. We had it happen in our house just recently. Trust me, and it wasn't me, but I'm not going to name names. This appeal, Paul has appealed to a number of things, and now finally Paul appeals to his relationship with the Galatians. I just want to point, a, point out a couple of things here. First he says, having known the truth... Why would you turn back to slavery? Whether it's slavery to the law or to paganism, it makes no difference. None of it can justify. None of it can save. You know, my niece will probably want to know about her mother and her grandmother who raised her after, for a little while after her mother died. She'll probably want to know about Ethiopia and the orphanage she, orphanage she came from. She may even want to visit it. But she will never want to leave the love of her family permanently and go back to live in that orphanage. And that's, what Paul, that's why Paul is perplexed. Hello! Why would you want to do that? Now, what does he mean, become like me, because I became like you? He's saying this. He's saying, become as I am, a Christian fully dependent on Christ's finished work on the cross rather than the law. Because... I have rejected the ceremonial law as if I were a Gentile, like you. Don't become Jewish in order to become a Christian, because then you're not a Christian at all. Well, I just want to apply all this and talk a little bit about remembering who we are. You know, I think we, you know, we look at this, and the Galatians were tempted to turn back to things that could not justify them. Uh, and we think, well, I'm much too sophisticated for that. I would never turn back, would I? But you know what? You know what repentance means? Repentance literally means to turn away. It's a 180-degree turn away from sin. I heard a speaker once say, repentance is a 360-degree turn away from sin. <laughs> but we do that, don't we? Just, I'm going to turn away from that. You know, kind of looks good, actually. And, and we do that sometimes, don't we? We make a 360-degree turn instead of a 180-degree turn. Um, we have been justified by God, and we are no longer under the supervision of the law, but we still struggle with sin. We still sometimes think sin looks good. We may be sophisticated, but we still sometimes turn back to our old ways. Not completely, but sometimes in part. Instead of being clothed in Christ, we want to maybe try on something different for a change. Uh, and we, we turn away uh, or turn back to that sin. But, but repentance is more than just turning away from sin. It's a turning toward 
God. And it is when we find our refuge in God, it is when we run to God for rescue and for refuge that we are able to overcome the temptations to return to old ways. Here's the truth about my sin, and I hate to tell you this, but it's the truth about your sin too. My sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. It was my sin that nailed him to that cross. I watched The Passion of the Christ a number of years ago, and it broke me. The vividness of the suffering of Christ. I, I sobbed, literally embarrassingly sobbed as I watched that in a crowded room. Would that my sin would cause that reaction every time to break my heart for what it cost God. The second truth about my sin is it breaks the heart of God. It breaks his heart when I sin. Peter, when he denied Jesus the third time, it said that as the cock crowed, Jesus was walking across the courtyard and he turned and he looked at Peter. When he looked at Peter, I don't think he was going like this. I think the look on his face was one of complete betrayal and sadness. His heart was broken by Peter's sin. Why would I ever want to break the heart of the one who sent his son that I might be redeemed from that very sin? The third truth about my sin is that it delights Satan. Make no mistake about it. Satan hates me. He hates you. And his, our sin delights him. Why would I want to do anything? to delight one who hates my soul. But here's the truth about our redemption. We have been bought back from that sin. We have been bought back from Satan. We are in Christ. Therefore, greater is he that is in me. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I was an angry, sad, lonely 17-year-old girl alone in my bedroom, when Christ reached down to me and rescued me and washed me and made me whole. And though I still struggle with sin, I will never be the same. And therefore I can say in the words of the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Father God, thank you, thank you that you have redeemed us through your son, that you have rescued us. Father, may we never turn back from that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll get to the rest of chapter four next week, I hope.